Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Well, if this is your first time joining us today, I just want to just thank you again for being here and let you know we are in the beginning weeks of the series called Why I Believe. And we're doing this series because it is so important to know why we believe what we believe. Because if we don't, we're going to be unprepared for all the things that are being said out there and purported out there. I mean, just think about the past year or two alone, all the various statements that people have been made, you know, that this is the truth. And I've seen people just sway all over the place because they didn't know why they believe what they believe. This is paramount. And so, you know, we've covered a variety of different subjects so far because of this, because Peter tells us to always be prepared. That means we got to really prepare ourselves to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do so courteously and respectfully. Can you imagine the outcome? of Christians doing that, knowing why we believe what we believe, and then just doing this in a way that respects people. And that's why we, in this series so far, have covered why I believe in God, why I believe God is always working, and why I believe in heaven. Well, today, we're going to address what the Bible says about those who don't go to heaven, and we're going to cover that difficult subject of why I believe in hell. And I know this is a very difficult subject for many, and it's probably why throughout my life I have never heard a sermon on this subject. I never have. And I think it's because for many it's just too hot to touch, right? So we'll mention it quickly, just kind of quick move on, but we're not going to dive into this. But here's the thing, and this is really important. While the church, while Christians, we don't really talk about this subject, just mention it briefly maybe. The world out there talks about this subject a lot. There are many people who once were Christians who have left the faith because of the subject. People are talking about this, and and if we are not, and if we are unprepared, I mean, so many people will walk away, so many people will believe otherwise. We we have to, to grapple with this, and yet still realize that it's difficult. It is. One person said it this way. He says, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe and the first to be abandoned. And so in light of this statement, it's possible that some of you here right now watching online have already you know, desired to abandon a belief in hell, if not overtly, maybe even you know, kind of privately. You might be like the college student who asked to meet with me about six or eight months ago. And so I sat down and she shared you know, that she had been in the process of deconstructing her faith. And she shared with me that she really struggled with the God of the Bible. I mean, she really struggled with him after all. He was judgmental, he's harsh, even sends people to hell if they don't live right. But she says, that's why I'm more enamored with Jesus. And then she told me that Jesus was like the Santa Claus version of God. That, that Jesus is kind and joyful and loving and non-judgmental. She really liked him. And this is sometimes how people view the Christian faith. They think, well, God, you know, kind of got to be fearful of him. But Jesus, of course, who is God, well, he's, he's good. We really like him because he's loving, he's accepting, he doesn't judge anyone. And so I listened to her for a while before asking her this question. 
I said, you know, I, I've heard what you said about hell and everything, but who spoke about hell in the Bible more than anyone else? And she was stumped. How would you answer that question? One of the Old Testament prophets, maybe? You know, maybe the Apostle Paul, I and mean, he wrote about a lot of things regarding theology. Well, the answer is Jesus. He spoke about hell more than anyone else and described the conditions of hell more than anyone else. And it's to this reality that C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and specifically of our Lord's own words. So why do I believe in hell? Well, because Jesus does. And if I try to do away with the doctrine of hell, here's the thing. I either have to do away with Jesus or I have to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and Peter all lied regarding what Jesus said, or I have to redefine what Jesus said. And since many people who disdain the concept of hell really struggle with you know, casting Jesus aside, and they're not really fans of really you know, calling those who died for their faith liars, they settle in on that third option. And this is what we've seen, I hope you've noticed, over the past even decade or so, redefining what Jesus said. Because if I can redefine him, then I can make him how I want him to be, non-judgmental, always good, doing what I think he should. So let's start here with what Jesus said. Now often when speaking about hell, Jesus spoke about a place known as Gehenna. I want you to repeat after me, Gehenna. That is the word he used over and over again when talking about hell. And this was a place, a place uh, that for hundreds of years was also known by other names like Tophet, so Gehenna, Tophet, or the Valley of Hinnom. They're all three different kind of references for the same place. And it's important to understand that Gehenna is merely the Valley of Hinnom's Aramaic name, which is why there's these interchangeable you know, titles for the same place. And this was a valley outside the walls of Jerusalem. So you ask, well, okay, if he's talking about hell, why does he refer to these places then, or this place that has three different names? Well, Jesus was doing what he most often would do when he was trying to get people to understand something. He would, he would use a physical something or a place or an object that people knew well to help them understand a spiritual truth. He wasn't saying, well, this is what it is. He's saying, you understand this, and if you do, then you can understand this. So imagine he's standing in front of a door, and he says, I am the door. And the people who are listening to him, they go, oh, he's a, he's a door. Well, I don't see a doorknob. I mean, that's kind of confusing to me. No, no, they understood what a door did. It opened the way so you could walk through into a new reality. Or Jesus would stand next to a candle, and he would say, I am the light. And people would go, oh, he's, he's not a candle. He doesn't look anything like a candle. It wasn't confusing to them because what does a candle do? It shines a light so you can see where you're going or where you ought to go. It's why he would say, you know, for example, the kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Now to us, we go, I don't really understand that, but for the culture back then, oh, I know what that looks like, a merchant looking for fine pearls. They go, oh, so that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Over and over again, he did this. He pointed to a physical reality to help people understand a spiritual truth. As it relates to our subject today, Jesus referred to a physical place the Jewish people knew really well to help them understand the realities of a spiritual place called hell. 
locking that in because if we don't understand that, you're going to be confused about everything else I say. Okay, it's really important. So I'm going to talk more about that in just a few moments, but for now, let's take a look at a little bit of what Jesus said. Matthew 5. He said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then if you take a look at the original transcription, Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell or Gehenna. So he's basically saying, if you struggle with a certain sin you know about now, deal with it now, repent from it now, rather than face separation from God in hell or Gehenna. C.S. Lewis kind of wrote it this way. He says, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns away from him. So by referring to good, he's referring to God and his goodness and his holiness. But the bad, he's referencing sin and our desire to go our own way. Now, when it comes to the subject of sin, the Pharisees in the New Testament, these were the religious leaders in the New Testament, they believed very clearly that other people struggled with sin more than they did. You know, for them in their minds, sin was an occasional misstep, while for other people, sin was an ongoing problem. So if you've ever sat back and wondered, why did, I mean, Jesus, I mean, he's speaking these wonderful truths. Why didn't the religious leaders, why didn't the Pharisees like Jesus very much? Well, look no further than Matthew 23, because it's here where he says to them, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? So much for the Santa Claus version of Jesus that some people want. He's doing this because they were hypocrites saying one thing and doing another, holding others to this high standard that they wouldn't even live up to themselves. But here's the thing that many people miss. It was due to Christ's love for them that Jesus made them aware of their sin. It's also why he died for them so they could repent and find everlasting life. Think about it this way. Would you really want a friend who knows all about your destructive choices but never does anything or says anything to you about them? Probably not. It's why scripture says wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So an enemy will say really wonderful things to you while you're destroying yourself, and a friend will see it, and they'll say something to you about it because they love you. See, good friends don't look for opportunities to excuse themselves from loving you. Rather, they lovingly get in the game with you if ever they see you struggling due to some outside force or due to your own hurtful decisions. That's a true friend, and Jesus is a true friend. And it's why he called the Pharisees out for their hypocrisy, and it's also why he went to the cross for them. And even though that's the case, some people who seek to maintain this Santa Claus, non-judgmental version of Jesus have then tried to redefine what Jesus said when he used those words that you spoke earlier, like Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. And here how, here's how it goes. And I've seen this written. I've seen this, heard this spoken over and over again. They would say, well, yes, Jesus spoke about hell or Gehenna a lot. But did you notice where hell or Gehenna exists? Well, it's right here on this earth. So Jesus isn't talking about a place where some people go after they die. Jesus is saying that hell resides right here, right now on this earth. So the clear implication then is we are living in hell right now. 
So wherever you live on this earth, if you live in Hawaii, on the coast of California, you know, in the mountains of Colorado, or right here in Cincinnati, Ohio, we are all then, they say, living in hell. And after we all die, then we all go to heaven. This is a redefinition of what Jesus said. It's known as universalism. That due to the love of God, all go to heaven free from judgment and accountability. And friends, this sounds like a really convenient ending to whatever life someone chooses to live here on this earth. When you really think about it, it's a belief that says that due to God's love, Hitler is in heaven, Stalin is in heaven, Putin will go to heaven when he dies, and one day you'll go to heaven as well. The good news in all of this is that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is on the, beyond the reach of God's goodness. Even people like Putin can experience God's forgiveness, but here's the thing. They must seek first his forgiveness. They have to ask him for it. And the Bible says when somebody has actually done this, their life will begin to change. It's why Jesus told us, for example, he said, by their fruit, you will know who they are. By the good fruit that comes out of their life, you will know that they are followers of me. And Jesus was talking about living fruit, life-giving fruit. At this point, all Putin has left behind is dead fruit. Thousands of people who are made in the image of God, completely stripped of their lives for no good reason at all. And this clearly shows that Putin does not yet know the author of life. And yet even so, some people believe that, you know, People don't really need to seek God's forgiveness to find this eternal life. Despite the rejection of God and despite how they choose to live and whatever they choose to do to others, they will be welcomed in God's arms in heaven because of God's amazing love. So while the Bible states that God is also holy and that he is also righteous and he's going to serve as judge over us all one day, for some people they say God is only love. And they have defined then how God's love should operate. It's an anything goes kind of love. For others, they don't quite look at it this way. They say, okay, but God's love is huge. It's so significant that it overrides all of God's other characteristics. That's why they would say even that love wins. And that's why in their minds, a party with Putin in heaven is possible. Friends, once you examine scripture, you don't need to imagine such a party for very long. I say this, first of all, because Gehenna was not a new concept in the Gospels. No, this, this was something well known within the Old Testament world. Again, references to Gehenna, which is also Tophet, which is also the Valley of Hinnom, same place. First of all, never associate this place with a reference for all people who live on this earth. Not even once. It was merely a valley that resided outside of Jerusalem's walls. Nor when these references were used, were they used as a reference for the entire earth. Take a look, for example, at Jeremiah 7. I'll read it slowly. So be aware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topeth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topeth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. So the Valley of Hinnom, or Topheth, it was originally a place then where continual fires were kept up. Why? Well, the fires were kept up to offer human sacrifices, most often children, in the honor of Molech. 
And this was their Baal worship. Originally, these people were not even honoring God at all. By the time Jesus walked this earth, that very same place was used for a garbage dump in Jerusalem. Now, there's important things to notice here. First of all, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, does not reference the entire earth. It was merely a valley outside of Jerusalem's walls. Nor does Gehenna reference what all living people are experiencing on earth right now. Rather, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, referenced the suffering that only some people experience. And since Gehenna resided just outside of Jerusalem's walls, every person who lived there, once they left and would go anywhere else, would pass by it every single day. It's why the prophet Isaiah told us, he said, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Key words there, those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die, and the fires that burn them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So a few more lessons here. The results of this place are focused only on those who rebel against God. Only on those. And it's not a place where everyone lived. If you take a look at the text, there are many people walking by experiencing its result in the lives of others. Also, Gehenna is not a temporary place. The passage refers clearly to worms that do not die and a fire that cannot be quenched. So bottom line, Jesus is saying, here's what this place is like, and it indicates that hell, in a spiritual reality, lasts forever. Now, when some people hear this, they respond sometimes, hey, okay, Phil, I mean, that's the Old Testament. That's not Jesus. Jesus would never support such a place. Well, I've already given some references, but let's go to the Gospel of Mark. And here, Jesus said, it is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to Gehenna into the fire that shall never be quenched. So Jesus makes it clear here that hell is not a temporary place, but an eternal place that only some people experience. Back to the Gospel of Matthew. Popular passage. Uh, And here, Jesus refers to himself first as the Son of Man. He often did this. He's the Son of Man. And then he tells us what will happen after he returns. Keep in mind that many people who purport universalism say that hell is only here on this earth and has nothing to do with us after we die. And Matthew 25 makes it clear it has everything to do with what happens to us after we die. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So for the sake of time, the sheep represent those people who know Jesus and have followed Jesus. The goats represent those people who knew about Jesus but chose to reject Jesus. And then Jesus said, the king will say to those on his right, These are the sheep, these are the people, the ones who knew Jesus because they repented to him and followed him. And these are the ones who hear Jesus say, come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The kingdom here refers to heaven, of course. And why do they go there? Because he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus is saying, come. Come spend eternity with me since out of your love for me, you loved and served others. 
These things are true for those who stand on his right. But what about the others? Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, again, these are the ones who knew about Jesus but chose to reject him, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. And friends, it's important here to to draw the, the, the parallel here that just like the prophet Isaiah referred to Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom or Topeth, as a place where worms do not die and the fire is not quenched, Jesus now then describes the spiritual reality of hell as also being eternal. I know that's hard for some, but it's very clear in the passage. But it's not all that we find, because Jesus says then, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, it's important here to notice here that, that hell was not a place originally prepared and designed for human souls. Jesus clearly says it was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Well, in Scripture, it's clear that the spiritual world preceded the physical world. So before God made the heavens and the earth, there was this spiritual world, and there Satan, once an angel in heaven, chose to try and claim God's throne for himself. And what happened was he then, and all the demons that followed him, then were sent to the place that God then prepared for them. Hell. In fact, if you want to read more about this when you get home, you can read Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, or Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. So while hell was a place originally prepared for the devil and his angels, human beings who choose the path of sin, unrepentance, and rejection of Christ, they also make another choice. They choose hell as their future home. It's their choice. You see, God is gracious enough and loving enough to honor their choice because he made us with free will. And we can make all the choices we want, but we are held accountable for our choices, whether they're the right ones or they are not. And why does Jesus tell us that some people will go there? As hard as it is. Well, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Jesus was saying, since you chose to love and serve yourself and you chose not to love and serve me, heaven cannot be your home. These things are true for those who stand on his left. And friends, it would be wise for every person to contemplate on which side of Christ you stand. And even as you do that, I think it's really important to contemplate what would motivate you to stand there. Is it fear or is it love? Mark Clark, a pastor in Vancouver, Canada, tells the story of this camp experience he had when he was a teenager. He called it turn or burn night afterwards because everyone was gathered around the fire, right? They're singing songs and playing games and then the speaker stood up. He threw gasoline on the fire so it immediately erupted and then the speaker said, do you want that to be you? Then believe in Jesus. Well, everyone chose Jesus that night. But did they really say yes? Did they really become followers? See, fear doesn't often produce true followers of Christ. Love does. Again, remember, why did Jesus say to those on his right, welcome? Well, again, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. 
These people had a loving relationship with Christ that caused them then to love and to serve others. Fear was not their motivation, love was. You see, these people never wanted to be separated from Jesus, the very lover of their soul. So don't let fear rob you, friends. Jesus said it this way, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, Jesus calls us into this beautiful relationship where we can experience his love, his grace, his peace, his forgiveness for all time. Friends, it's a life like no other that begins here and extends into our forever with God, the very one who made us and the very one who calls us. The question is, have you responded to God's call of love? I think some have put God's call on hold because they have yet this other question. Why is there a hell? Why is there a hell? Because if we're honest, we really don't like it at all. And this causes some people to feel that God really isn't a God of justice if he would send anyone there. This has even caused some to stand as judge over God and find him unreliable if this is how he is. To that, I would merely ask, is this consistent with how we, who have been made in God's image, truly live day to day? Let me give you an example. Well, it only took Derek Chauvin around nine minutes to take George Floyd's life. I doubt anyone here in this place or watching online would really feel good if they learned that during our time here together, a loving judge set Derek free for the rest of his life. Because out of this judge's love, he said, well, it was only nine minutes. It's kind of harsh to keep him there. I'm going to set him free. If that was the case, we would not only be angry, we would call for the removal of that judge. Because after all, that would not be just, that would not be fair, because at some level we all know that a life without accountability is not a good life at all. Consider for a moment what one pastor wrote, because we live here, and we think, oh, it's so hard, our air conditioning broke, life is so hard. But outside where we live, people are starved to death, they are brutalized, they know pain. And he wrote, when you get outside the Western world, you learn that some people have the exact opposite feelings about hell and God's judgment. They see the evil that people commit and wonder how God could be just if there isn't a hell and if there isn't divine judgment. They believe that hell exists because God is a God of justice. But here's, here's the other side of the equation. If God wasn't then holy and just, like the Bible says that he is, if he wasn't those things, then Hitler would be in heaven. And one day Stalin would welcome you at the pearly gates. But God is a God of justice. And since we are made in God's image, here's the thing. We often cry for justice as well, don't we? You see it all the time. And yet because we have sin in our hearts, it's hard for us because we don't all the time know how to ensure justice accurately. But we still try because we, we have this need for justice inside of us. And that's why some refrain from buying products made in Russia when they first invaded Ukraine. It's why, for example, some picketed large corporations who destroyed forests and land for their own advancement. It's why even some rejoiced when Larry Nassar was sent to prison for the rest of his life for the hundreds of girls he abused. And while we long to ensure that people are held accountable for the wrong that they do, we often struggle to ensure true justice accurately. We try, but we know we're not always accurate in this. But the same cannot be said about God. 
Scripture tells us he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Friends, since God is just, there is a hell. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way. It's a great quote. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All those who go to hell, they choose it. God merely honored their choice. Because you see, God is a gentleman. He will not force his incredible, amazing love upon you. But while you're here and you're living, he's still going to keep pursuing you because he loves you. And still some wonder, and I've heard this, well, if someone then does go to hell, I mean, does that mean they suffer there forever? Or some have asked it this way, well, hell lasts forever. Does the same apply to a person's judgment? And while universalism is not a belief of Christianity, people have differed, Christians have differed regarding, you know, how long judgment lasts. They've disagreed. Some Christians will say, well, it goes on forever. And they refer to Christ's own words when describing hell in Luke 13, that there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Or they might refer to Christ's words in Mark 9, that it is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to Gehenna into the fire that shall never be quenched. For many Christians, I mean, these words point to an ongoing judgment where many people experience the horrible realities of being separated from God for all time due to their choice. Yet other Christians respond by saying, well, yes, there will be a short period of time when, when they're sent to hell, they're going to experience such a judgment, but that judgment will not last forever. Rather, after receiving their judgment from God and their separation from God, their lives will cease to exist. And these Christians might point to Mark 9 as well and say that while the flames of hell last forever, Jesus doesn't seem really to say that a person's judgment does. They might turn to Christ's words in Matthew 7 where he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to, key word here, destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. For some Christians, they say, well, those who walk the narrow road with Jesus, they do experience eternal life. Those who choose the wide road do not experience eternal judgment. Rather, the Bible says their lives are destroyed because destruction clearly means something that once existed no longer exists. And friends, I raise this up because Christians hold contrary views regarding this. What I would say is, you know what? The length of someone's judgment from God is God's to determine. And I find it to be a waste of time when Christians argue over these things because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be permanently separated from God for one second. I can't imagine that God would pursue me, that he would send his son to go to the cross for me and I would say no and then experience the result. That's why our call as Christians is to remind people that Jesus came. It's to remind people that Jesus died and rose again. And why did he come? He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So do you have life? Do you have it to the full? I say again, it would be wise for every person to contemplate on which side of Christ they stand. To the left or to the right? Why do I believe in hell? Well, I believe in hell because Jesus clearly does. But here's the good news. Jesus also believes in you. 
And that's why out of his love, out of his obedience to his father, he suffered on that cross for you so that he could take your sins upon himself at the cross. He would die and rise again so that you could know eternal life. Yes, he does. He believes in you. But here's the question. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? For all those who are watching, those who are here, can you just close your eyes in this moment? And I believe some, as I've been speaking about the realities of all of this, you've been contemplating things in your mind and in your heart. I think there's so many people who just know about Christ, they know about God, they know about the cross. And yeah, it's there, but it's kind of on a shelf. If that's you, I just want to remind you, God loves you. You, like everyone else, we have our sin problem, but God chose not to leave us there. That's why he pursued us. That's why Jesus came for us. If you're saying, you know what, I don't really want to live on the fence with all this any longer. God loves me. I want to love him. Well, you might say a prayer something like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. I want to love you. I want to follow you. So Lord, forgive me of all my sin. Thank you for going to the cross for me. Thank you for rising from the grave so that I could know life as well. Lord, forgive me. And it's the desire of my heart to follow you all the days of my life. I want to be a child of God. I want to experience, Jesus, your living Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.